0: We have a true feast today, not because I'm in the pulpit. One brother said, oh, you're preaching, I'll be praying. (laughs) I say amen to that, please continue to pray. This passage of scripture is absolutely incredible, and what it means for our life is transformational. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you today grateful to be called your children, grateful to be united with Christ, grateful that you have come to set us free from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, and eventually one day from the presence of sin. And so we lift up our eyes to you, and Father, we pray that now, by your Spirit that dwells in us, you would lead us into all truth as we unpack this passage, and Lord, that we would move forward in our transformation. As we understand more and more what you've done for us in our salvation, grant me grace to preach, grant me grace to hear as I preach, grant my brothers and sisters grace to hear and apply your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So now we're in Colossians chapter 3, and we've spent the first two chapters with Paul waxing away on doctrine Um, This passage kind of serves as a bridge or transition point from the two halves of this letter. The first half is doctrinal, emphasizing the deity of Christ and his redeeming work, and that in opposition to the false teachings, making their way into the Colossian congregation. We spent the last two to three weeks dealing with the false teachings, human philosophy, legalism, mysticism, asceticism, anything Christ plus which takes away from Christ. And we're going to continue to hammer and hammer and hammer on this because a lot of times we can amen and we're still holding on to things and trusting in things other than Christ. It's hard to let go of a performance-driven mindset in the Christian life. If I just do this and this and this, God's going to love me. If I just do this, this and this, I will be accepted by him. That is heresy. The gospel is not that you bring your pretty good record to God and God blesses you. The gospel is that Christ creates for you a perfect record and blesses you and makes you the delight of his heart. According to the false teaching, there was something lacking in Christ, and the supplement of man's wisdom and works were needed. Paul vehemently disagrees. In Colossians 2, 9 and 10, he says, for in him, Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. You don't have any parts missing today you have everything that you need for life and for godliness because of Jesus Christ and Christ alone. The second half of the letter is going to be dealing much more in the practical areas, laying out various implications and applications of doctrine, the mortification of sin. How do we kill sin? That's what we're gonna be dealing with next week. You don't wanna miss next week. Pursuing righteousness, loving one another, storing up the word of God in our hearts, prayer and evangelism. And this is the way Paul always writes, isn't it? Doctrine to begin with and then practical application. In our culture, though, we don't like doctrine. Doctrine divides, doctrine's boring, doctrine's all these things. We just want to just tell us what to do. The problem is, is that the doctrine gives us the, the power and the energy and the long-term stick intuitiveness to carry out what the commands are. You take away the doctrine, and now you're doing stuff, but you don't know why you're doing it. Paul constantly brings doctrine first, and from the doctrine comes transformation. For, many of us, for some of us here, many of us here, as we struggle with sin, a lot of times our problem with sin is we have believed a false doctrine about something, and we've held on to it, and now it's bearing fruit in our life and we're trying as hard as we can to keep the tree chopped down. But it just continues to produce it because we've bought into false doctrine to begin with. John Phillips, in his commentary on Colossians and Philemon, writes, The resurrection of Christ has changed everything for both the world and the Christian. The cult has nothing to compare with that. What's the cult? The Colossian cult. The Colossian heresy Paul has been dealing with this heresy in verses verse after verse it is almost with an audible sigh of relief that he returns back to Christ having spelled out what Christianity is not and what is Christianity not it's not intellectualism it's not high-sounding nonsense it's not worshiping angels it's not keeping all kinds of man-made rules or performing prodigious feats of self-denial Paul now shows us what Christianity is. The Christian life is a shared life. And we're gonna hit that today in point number two of our outline. We live a shared life. The life of the all-victorious, risen, ascended Christ is shared with each believer by means of the indwelling spirit of God. The paragraph now opening up Before us is one of the superlative paragraphs of Scripture. Someone came today and said, this is my favorite passage of Scripture. This is a wonderful passage of Scripture. Paul takes us into the bank of heaven. He shows us the illuminable resources of the living God that fill the vaults and every available nook and cranny of space. Help yourself, he tells us. It's all yours this is better than anything that can be found on some fabled treasure aisle. Paul begins by pointing out to us the true mysteries, not the counterfeit mysteries or, or the satanic mysteries offered by the cult. But the true mysteries of a life hidden with Christ in God. He sets before us truth so mystical that we have to keep on reminding ourselves that it is also real and genuine and intensely practical. What we've been given really goes beyond our imagination. I remember years ago talking to an international student who's from China, and his comment was this: "This is the most wonderful. It's about the gospel." This is the most wonderful story I've ever heard. If only it were true, if only it could be true, if only it was true, what we have been given, friends, is remarkable, incredible, amazing. And sometimes with the reading of scripture and the business of life, we lose sight of that. Paul does not forget for a moment that we are also in Colossae. Paul might have his head in the clouds, but his feet are very much on the ground. He might be dwelling on the heavenlies, but he is also constantly reminded of the earthlies by the dismal rattling of his chain and the restless movements and perhaps exasperated curses of the soldiers to whom he is chained. The soaring sentences that begin this new section of the Colossian masterpiece are sublime beyond all merely human thought. They are written, however, in a very specific context. They are designed to direct us away once and for all from all cultic solutions to the problem of ingrained sin. Paul wants us to live above the world. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. Satan's temptations assail us from without. Our sinful temperament attacks us from within. The answer to it all is Christ. Legalism does not offer a solution. Asceticism does not offer a solution. Human philosophy does not offer a solution. And as we come to this passage, the last verse of of chapter 2, let's read it one more time to drive home the point. These, talking about all these different false ideas of how to get rid of sin and how to be holy, all of these false ideas have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh." You can have all the rules you want, you can have all the mystical experiences you want. You can beat your body and make it your slave. The reality is you will not be able to conquer the flesh, the indulgence of the flesh by that technique. There is only one who is able to do that. He is our Lord. He is our savior. And sadly, To our own detriment, we have not understood who he is and not understood what he's given us. And we've walked around in ignorance. And for many of us, we are trapped in sin. We are wound up in sin. We can't get ourselves free from it. And we've pretty much given ourselves the idea that this is just the way it's going to be in life. It's just going to be this way and I'm just going to have to smile and suffer and move forward. I'm here today to tell you, friends, there's victory in Jesus Christ for whatever has you bound up. As a father, I went fishing a lot with my children, and I didn't do a lot of fishing. I did everything else but fishing when my children went fishing. And it was amazing how they could cast a line, and in a matter of minutes, they had this line all wrapped in a huge ball. And they would bring it over to me, And they want me to get all entangled so they can fish some more. May I say this? For some of us in our lives, we are all balled up. We are literally wrapped and tangled in sin. And growing in despair, this passage offers hope. This passage offers relief and victory in Jesus Christ. And if we get to the end of this message and you are tangled up and you're still not sure how to get untangled, there's nothing I would rather do than to sit down with you and slowly work at untangling the ball of string and, se- and see Christ set you free. Amen? One commentator said, nearly every new formula for Christian living or secret of success is an effort to capitalize on the dissatisfaction of Christians who have somehow failed to understand what the Bible teaches about the Christian life. Remember our quote from Sinclair Ferguson, a half-learned Jesus opens us up to all kinds of, of nonsense as far as solutions to who he is. So what we're going to try to do today is what this missionary pilot tries to do when he teaches his pilots to land. Missionary pilot Bernie May writes, one of the most difficult lessons to teach new pilots and landing about landing on short hazardous airstrips is to keep their eyes fixed on the good part of the strip rather than on the hazards. That natural tendency is to concentrate on the obstacle, to concentrate on the problems. The danger, the thing that we're trying to avoid. But experience teaches us that a pilot who keeps his eye on the hazard will sooner or later hit (laughs) it dead center. Because eventually, whatever we're focused on, we're going to do what? We're going to hit, aren't we? That's just the way it works. Experienced pilots focus their attention solidly on the track they want the plane to follow, keeping the hazards in their peripheral vision only. Basketball, what do we focus on? We focus on the front edge of the rim, baby. We're not looking at the crowd. We're not smiling at the fans. We're focused right here. The marksman has his target clearly in his focus. Any kind of goal setting, we're set on a target. We have a target that we're shooting for. Paul is going to unpack for us in Colossians 3 the target. The target is three things. It is the pursuit of Christ. It is understanding the power we have in Christ and the prize that he holds out for us. That is ours. Colossians three one through four. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on earthly things. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. As we look at Colossians three. One, Paul focuses back in on Christ and he gives us two commands. Seek the things that are above and set your minds on the things that are above. Seek the things that are above, set your minds on the things that are above. You want a solution to being transformed into the image of Christ? You've got to set your focus on Christ. The commands are in the present tense what does that matter in the greek the present tense means it's a it's a continuous action you're constantly setting your attention on things above you're constantly setting your mind on the things above your heart your passion is focused on those things that are above no one can serve two masters in um Matthew six twenty four. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and he will despise the other. You can't have two masters. You're going to focus on one, or you're going to focus on the other. Your human eye can only focus on one object at a time. In photography, you pick what's going to be in focus. Everything else is what? Slightly out of focus. This is the way God has created us. Why is this important to fix our eyes on Christ and on his character and on his promises and on his word. Why is that important? Tim Keller writes, first of all, the idols of the heart cannot simply be removed. They can only be replaced. I've seen many people over the years very often through counseling or just through the hard knocks of life finally start to realize that they were slaves to what their parents had said or they're slaves to their parental expectations or they're slaves to people's approval or they're slaves to their need to control the environment. They suddenly realize that they are slaves to something. And they suddenly say, in effect, that they can, by a simple act of the will, no longer be Enslaved. Sounds something like this. I'm not going to be controlled by that anymore. Hmm. That will never work. Not for very long. It won't. Why is that the case? Scottish Presbyterian minister Thomas Chalmers says this There is no one personal transformation. In which the heart is left without an object of ultimate beauty and joy. You're not going to have any kind of transformation where you remove the focus of the heart on something that it loves and leave it there with nothing. We've seen this happen with people who are having problems with alcoholism, haven't we? They put down the alcohol and they pick up the what? The cigarette there's always something they're going to pick up or if we're going to be dieting i'm going to put down the carbs and i'm going to pick up something else right our heart is designed the heart's desire for one particular object can be conquered but its desire to have some object is unconquerable we can replace one object your heart has its focus on with something else We cannot just remove everything that your heart has focused on because it will focus on something. Our hearts are idol makers. We're looking for something to focus on and to love and to worship. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. That is transformational friends how do we get rid of an old affection we must put the heart on to something else to focus on so you're riddled with worry constant anxiety stop being anxious clear the plate nothing's on there well we're gonna be we're gonna be anxious again aren't we Well, we're dealing with lust. Stop lusting. We're going to be looking somewhere else. We're going to be looking for something else. What Chalmers is saying is this. We must replace the idols, the sin in our life, with something else that the heart can cherish. And guess what that is? paul tells us here in this passage it is christ he is the beautiful thing you put before your heart what we see then he goes on uh, in verse two is to set your mind on something but verse one says you have to set your heart on something something you grasp with the mind has to rivet and capture your heart So it starts by setting your mind on something and focusing on it until your heart becomes riveted to that. That's the only thing that's going to save you and change you and move you away from the old self, which is basically driven by these idols. And here is what this is saying. First, there's a truth that you set your mind on and then it's that truth that you have to bring into your heart, and that's what actually changes your behavior. How does this work? Name the sin I'm dealing with. As long as I focus on that sin and trying to remove that sin, I'm like the pilot trying to land the plane looking at the hazards. I'm gonna constantly crash and miss the runway because my focus cannot be on my sin, it has to be on the runway, it has to be on Christ. You know, I've, talk, I've talked to several people in my counseling years who have dealt with a certain sin issue and they have literally been completely tied up with it. And they're looking like, hey, I need, I need meds, I need something, I, I cannot get out of this situation. It's amazing what happens when they put their mind on Christ and they look to him as their only solution. And they use the word of God to focus their mind on Christ. There is transformation that takes place there. Spurgeon chimes in, though you have struggled in vain against your evil habits, though you have wrestled with them sternly and resolved and re-resolved only to be defeated by your giant sins and your terrible passions, there is one who can conquer all your sins for you. There is one who's stronger than Hercules, who can strangle the hydra of your lust, kill the lion of your passions, and cleanse the Augean stable of your evil nature by turning the great rivers of blood and water of his atoning sacrifice right through your soul, he can make and keep you pure within. Christ can do that. Oh, look to him. That's Spurgeon's admonition. Look to Christ. Some of you may say, well, what's the uh, Ajun stable? In, in Greek mythology, there was this king, August he had a stable that hadn't been cleaned in 30 years that's a bad scene that's kind of like our life sometimes isn't it hasn't been cleansed and and heracles took these two mighty rivers and funneled them through the stable and in one day cleaned out the 30 years that were there spurgeon is saying turn the blood of christ to your life and watch him cleanse All the accumulated sin that's been there for weeks and months and years. Christ can set you free. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul tells the Corinthians this. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. What's Paul's solution? Behold the glory of Christ. Do you want to be transformed? Do you want to be changed? Are you tired of your sin? Behold the glory of Christ. Lock your mind on to him. Allow your heart to see the beauty of Christ. If your focus is there The sin's here, but you know what? in your peripheral vision and you're moving forward and you're being transformed as you focus on him. This is the solution to the holy life. Not a bunch of man-made rules, not mysticism, not asceticism. Why do you think the Bible has given us four books about Jesus? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. What a blessing. Four testimonies of Christ. What are we to do that? Well, let's make sure we have it dusted off on the shelf. That's good. It's going to be really helpful, isn't it? Open it. Feast on it. Read about Jesus. Have him as your focus. He is the great treasure. Hebrews 12 too. Remember Hebrews is talking about this great cloud of witnesses and we are to run this race. Remember that? We're to cast off every sin and the, and the things that so easily entangle us and run the race with perseverance. What's his admonition? His admonition is this, looking to Jesus. Some translations say, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and his seed at the right hand of the throne of God. How are you gonna run the race well? How is your life gonna be transformed? Setting your eyes on Christ, looking to Jesus. The others may sound very impressive, may sound very intellectual, may sound very spiritual. It has no power to restrain the insensual indulgence. And look what Christ did who for the joy set before him, what did he have his eyes on? He had his eyes on what? Purchasing a people that he would live with forever in glory with the Father. This world is rough. There's lots of stuff in this world. The world, the flesh, and the devil constantly bombard us. We have to see beyond that. We have to get focused on something and Paul says clearly, I'm telling you, Christ is it. This, this, this passage of scripture could be titled Solus Christus, only Christ. Not Christ plus this or that or anything else. Only Christ. You know, I have, a, I have the privilege sometimes of working with people who come from the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church has Christ plus works, Christ plus the saints, Christ plus the traditions of the pope, Christ plus the teachings of the magisterium. It looks impressive. The problem is it's not the gospel. And I know Catholics who know Christ. So in spite of the wrong doctrine, they have grabbed their bible or someone has told them about jesus and they have gotten a hold of him we want to avoid christ plus matthew 6:33 but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well that needs to be our focus H.A. Ironside said, the more my heart is taken up with Christ, listen to what he says, the more do I enjoy practical deliverance from sin's power. Do you want to be set free? Are you here today and you're in bondage to sin and you're a believer? Let your heart be taken up with Christ and you'll begin to feel the grip of sin. Letting go. Richard Baxter, in his early years as a teen, was racked with sickness. He had kidney stones, headaches, tooth, toothaches, swollen limbs, intermittent bleeding at his extremities, and all kinds of other problems. And there were no pain medication. How about that for fun? What was his solution? He purposed to spend 30 minutes each day focused on heaven. Focused on Christ, focused on heaven, focused on the things above. And this is what was said about him. This cultivation gave him daily doggedness and hard work for God, despite the debilitating effect of his sick body. He stands for all time as proof that there is supernatural strength for God's service that is beyond human explanation. The picture of Christ can give us the strength to do what we could never do in our, in our own flesh. Never. This is why he is our savior. Baxter wrote a little book called The Saints Everlasting Rest. In the back he has some helpful hints on how to focus our mind on things above. Number one, take responsibility for directing your mind. You are a person who can choose. Take personal responsibility for where your mind goes yeah but i had this temptation you can say no by the power of the spirit to that Two, learn the art of talking to yourself okay stop I know what you're thinking i'm not crazy it's not the first step toward madness it's the first step towards spiritual health what's our problem? According to, um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says, our problem is we spend too much time listening to ourselves. Our mind starts talking to us and we go, yeah, that's right. I hadn't thought about that. And it tells us, hmm, that is, that's a good idea. I thought about that. And and, and it just takes us down this little path, doesn't it? And then also we find ourselves in a big, in a big pile of sin. We go, wow, how'd I get there? You listen to yourself. Speak to yourself. Every Christian must learn to be a preacher to his own soul. You'll even hear people now talking about preach the gospel to yourself. What does that look like? It looks like this. You did not save yourself. Jesus loved you and died for you. And you are now loved by him. You don't have to get on the performance wagon anymore. You can trust Christ and live for him. If you're going to be changed, you must look at Christ. This is not about your best effort now. This is about Christ and preaching the gospel to us. Christ has given us everything we need for life and for godliness. Set upon thy heart roundly, persuade it in the work. Don't accept any excuses. Chide it for its backwardness. Bring it to the service, willing or not willing. Take up the authority God has given you. Command your heart. If you feel too weak, call in the Spirit of Christ to your assistance. He says, if we hired some youngster in our, in our business and he, he piddled around for three or four days just kind of walking around the business and talking to people and not getting his work done, what would we do? We would call him into the office and we'd say, this is it right here. You're supposed to do this and this and this. Baxter says... You need to do that with your with your mind. You need to direct your mind according to the scripture where it needs to go. We're not talking positive thinking that's just positive for positive sake. We're talking about directing our mind into the truth of the scripture. If our mind wanders around long enough, it's going to get into the sin. Mine does. Three, direct your heart and your will by exercising trust in God's promises. You're dealing with whatever the sin is. Find the promise of God that will counteract that. I'm really worried about the future and what's going to happen to me. Well, let's find a scripture that tells us do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. I'll do that. I'm really worried about X. Lord Jesus, here's X. I am really worried about that. Would you please take care of that for me? I trust you with that. It's very practical. The Christian life is very practical practical and that's what Paul's getting ready to dive into in the next two chapters finally use the joys of earth to propel your mind toward heaven what do you mean by that you walk out in the morning I don't know about you but in my in my morning I have these trees and I have the sun coming through the grass as it looks as it comes through the trees I see the beauty of the sun Lord, thank you for your incredible creation. Thank you that one day we're not going to have a son, but your glory will be our son. I sit down to a great meal. Do I just focus on the meal alone? Or do I think, Lord, what a blessing that comes from your hand. Thank you for your kindness and your graciousness to me. Thank you that one day we're going to feast together in heaven. What a blessing that is. Or some God brings some provision your way. Instead of just taking, oh great, I'm glad I got this. Thank you, Lord. I know that came from your hand. Everything looking, every blessing on earth looking beyond to the giver of that blessing. Use the joys of earth to propel your mind towards heaven. If we're all self-focused, we waste it anyway, don't we? The Bible says every good and perfect gift is from where? Above. From the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Every gift you have. As you love your wife, Ben, women, as you love your husband, Lord, thank you for this blessed relationship you give me. What a joy it is. What a small picture it is of what my relationship with you will be one day face to face. Oh, I look forward to it with such joy. When we gather here to sing and worship each Sunday, is it just here? Do we just think about FCF? This is as good as it gets. The worship here is as good as it gets. It's good here, but there's a place one day where we're gonna stand and worship from the rising of the sun to the setting of the same. Can you see your worship here and move forward beyond it to the reality of heaven? This way, all the blessings God's given us, we can enjoy because we see not just them, but beyond them to what's beyond them. So that is the pursuit. The pursuit is Christ. The next is the power. Our union with Christ We have been told that we have died with him, we've been buried with him, and we've been raised with him. We're told that in verse three, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. In verse two or verse three, he says, for you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. We, because of what Christ has done for us, have been united with Christ. Just look up the little phrase, in Christ, in your Bible. There are Hundreds of references to in Christ. That's the way the Bible describes us. We are in Christ. We are connected to Christ. There's this union that's here. And the amazing thing is there's been this great transformation and exchange between God and us where he's taken our sin and he's given us his righteousness. And when God sees us, he sees Christ. Christ. Colossians 2, 12, and 13. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the power working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. As Christ was raised, we have been raised spiritually. One day we're going to be raised physically when he comes. We have died to our flesh. We have been buried in baptism. There is this incredible union with Christ. In Romans 6, 4 and 5, we were buried, therefore, with him, not by ourselves, by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. How are we going to change and be transformed? Because we're now in union with Christ. Our life is no longer our own. We were bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 6 tells us. Therefore, honor God with your body. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Do you believe that? A lot of us don't believe that because sin is so strong in our life. We really don't believe that it's been brought to nothing. They're just flowery words. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Christ died to set you free. To set me free. From sin. How about this verse Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. But Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul said, I'm I'm not my own anymore. The life I live is Christ's life in me. He has the power to overcome the sin that I never could. He dwells with me and he's already purchased my salvation from the Father and the Father loves me like he loves Christ. Christ. Keller again what is the truth you are supposed to know with the mind you're being told here that when you become a Christian when you say I believe in you Lord Jesus what makes you a Christian is not that you are now living in a certain way though of course you're going to change but what makes you a Christian is that you are now in Christ that's that's positionally you were in Christ That's just where the power comes from. It means that God sees you as as so one with him, that is Christ, that he looks at you as if you had died and been raised with Christ because you have, in a sense. When it says you died with Christ, it means this, God now sees you as free from anything you've done wrong, as if you had died on the cross and paid. It's already paid no condemnation. And what does raised mean? To be raised at the right hand? Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. It's a metaphor, of course, but it's getting at something incredible. Think of what has happened. When a king would send out his son into a dangerous mission, and the son would come back victorious, he'd been noble, he'd been brave, he'd been loving, he'd been sacrificial, he'd been wise. And when the son comes back, the king delights in his son. The king loves his son. And the king puts him at his right hand. This is the place of honor. Why do we keep talking about Christ sitting at the right hand of God? He is in the place of honor. He has done what the Father asked him to do. He has purchased our salvation. He is victorious. He is already glorified in heaven. He is sitting at the right hand of God. The highest, the greatest honor you could give a human being in that kingdom. Jesus has this place of honor at the right hand of the Father. And we know all about these things. Jesus has done. But it says, you're raised with him. You're seated with him. What this means is that if you give yourself to Jesus Christ... God then delights in you as if you had done everything Jesus had done. God delights in you as much in you as he does in his own son. I don't think we hear that. I don't think we get that. That in the great exchange, we are in the beloved. We are loved by God, just like he loves Christ. Brothers and sisters, there is no better news than that. Despite your performance, despite your level of commitment, you are loved by the Father. Turn to John chapter 17. John 17 is an amazing prayer by Jesus. In verse 14, he says, I have given them your word, talking about his disciples. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Do you realize, brothers and sisters, we're not of the world? We're different than everybody else who don't know Christ because we are not of this world. Just as I am not of the world. Look at verse 23. I, in them, this is Jesus talking, you, talking to the Father, are in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Loved them even, or I would say in the same manner as you loved me. How do we deserve that? We don't. No matter how good you are at dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's and checking all the boxes, what a gift that we are loved by the Father, that we are united to His Son, whom He dearly loves. And His destination is our destination. There's people in our culture all the time trying to get a hold of somebody who's famous and get connected to them so that whatever their destination is, their destination goes along with it, right? That's what groupies are. They all hang around, hope to get connected to someone. There's a relationship built. And now you go to Europe and I go with you. Friends, we are in Christ. We are his brothers and sisters. We are in the family. We have been adopted. And he promises to finish the work he started in us. He gave us the same spirit that lived in Jesus. We've been given the Holy Spirit. And he says, you're better off, you're better off, we're better off to have the spirit than the disciples were who didn't have the spirit and had Jesus, what an incredible blessing. It's really important to know who you are. It is really important to know who you are. Back when I was in high school, I knew who I was. I was a bulldog. Don't laugh, mighty, mighty bulldogs. We had a little song we sang. And my coach, who was an excellent coach, built within our minds a tradition that we did certain things on the court, and that we win. And he even, we even played Sweet Georgia Brown, the Globetrotter song as we came out. We thought we were hot stuff. <clears throat> and then they would announce the other team, and the lights were on, and <clears throat> they would come out and they'd kind of get in a little huddle and go yay or whatever it's kind of weak <laughs> but for us the lights went down it was pitch black and then this spotlight came on and this purple carpet was rolled out from our huddle to the middle of the court and then they would call Paul Renfro I would run out there the spotlight would follow me out there And we had this, we understood who we were. We were part of a tradition. And we had sat on the bench and watched the juniors and seniors the years before win against teams who go, oh, they're never gonna win this game. Wow, they won that game, unbelievable. And we had this sense of identity that we belonged to each other, right? That's the problem in America right now is we've lost our identity of who we are as a nation. Because of education, stripping away the values of who we are, we have people who don't even know what we came from, what our tradition is, what our legacy is. May I say to you, if you don't know the word of God, you don't know your legacy. You don't know your privilege. You don't know whose you are. And you're going to find yourself eating in the pig trough and doing all kinds of abominable things. Because you don't know that you're Christ. That you are intimately connected to him. Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? The Father has given us Jesus, brothers and sisters. What will he not give us? He's going to give us everything that we need in this life for life and godliness according to his purpose. And we have this incredible future that cannot be taken from us. So we've seen the pursuit focused on the heavenlies, focused on Christ, how did you get saved? who did you focus on to get saved? You focused on Christ he became your only object of focus and you believed completely in him, in him alone, and you were saved. How are you going to be transformed the exact same way you 're going to focus on Christ you 're going to focus on his promises you 're going to focus on the fact that you're loved. Whether you've had a good day or whether you've had a bad day, whether you've checked all the boxes or whether you haven't checked the boxes, you are loved by him. He died for you. He indwells you by the power of the Spirit. And there's no sin that you deal with that he can't crush. If you look to him, instead of getting led astray over to some foolish teachings, some nonsense as some people call it, That has no power in which to transform your life. What is this? This is this. This is why false teaching is so bad, and it seems so good, and it looks so spiritual, but it takes you away from Christ, and it takes you away from becoming like Him, and it takes away your effectiveness. So we've seen the pursuit, we've seen the power because we are now connected to Christ. We are in Christ. We have the Holy Spirit. And then finally, the prize. Colossians three. Verse four, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Friends, we're going somewhere. History just, just, is not circular. We're going somewhere. We're going to glory. When Christ appears, it's done. We will not only have been saved from the penalty and the power, but it will then be the what? The presence of sin. Set your mind on the goal. 17, 24, Father... I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundations of the world. Jesus wants to show us his glory. He wants us to see what he was like before he came to earth and what he enjoyed in heaven. He wants to take us there. John 14. Let your hearts not be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you will be also. What a promise. What a promise. He wants us to see his glory. He is preparing a place for us. Uncertainly believable, unbelievable, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. And he's not satisfied with us wallowing in our sin because he's given us the power He's given us the promises. He's given us the person to focus on. And he's promised victory. He's promised that. Listen to Paul, Philippians chapter 3. Paul's a passionate guy. Listen to what he says. He has his eyes on the prize. Paul is intentional. He's going somewhere. He has a mission. He's going to get stuff done for God by the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. And he has his eyes on something. <clears throat> Philippians 3, eight. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Everything else is lost compared to knowing Christ. Everything. Even my Judaistic religion is lost. That's my goal, the resurrection from the dead, to be with Christ forever. Not that I've already obtained all this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ, Jesus, has made me his own. I belong to him. I'm no longer my own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have already made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He left all the man-made religion behind. His focus was on Christ and he was running hard. For the prize now brothers and sisters there's a lot of saints out there who are trying to live for Jesus and sometimes we don't know the pain they're in we don't know the trouble they're in we don't know the d- discouragement they're in we don't know Nancy Lee DeMoss writes in one of her books, the following. If you have been a Christian for any length of time, you have probably struggled with thoughts like those expressed by this discouraged believer. This is what he said. I hated myself. I hated my sin. I felt that there was nothing I so much desired in this world as holiness. Nothing I so much needed, but so far in any measure attaining it. The more I pursued and strove after it, the more it eluded my grasp, till hope itself almost died out. Can you relate to that? I just want holiness, and I cannot seem to get my hand on it. I cannot tell you how I am buffeted sometimes by temptation. I never knew how bad a heart I had. Often I'm tempted to think that one so full of sin cannot be a child of God at all. Can you relate to that? Would it surprise you to learn that these anguished words flowed from the pen of one of the most revered heroes in the history of the Christian church? J. Hudson Taylor, 19th century pioneer missionary to China, was renowned as a man of extraordinary faith, sacrifice, prayer, and devotion. When he wrote these words, Taylor was the leader of the thriving China Inland Mission that literally took the gospel into mainland China. For several months, he had carried a burden for greater holiness in the mission and in his own life, and he later wrote of that period, I prayed, I agonized, I fasted, I strove, I made resolutions, I read the word more diligently, but all was without effect. Every day, almost every hour, the consciousness of sin oppressed me. In the fall of 1869, Hudson Taylor found himself at a crisis point. The pressure had been building up for months. He had experienced a serious illness, the the unbearably hot climate, the stresses associated with overseeing a large and growing ministry, endless demands on his time and extensive travel under primitive conditions in the interior of China. He found himself with frayed nerves, irritable, prone to harshness, and unable to live the life of holiness he so longed to exhibit. From his tormented heart, he asked a question many of us may have asked on occasion. Is there no rescue? Must it be thus to the end? Constant conflict and instead of victory, too often defeat? Still in turmoil, he returned home from a trip to find a letter from a fellow missionary named John McCarthy, who had recently encountered Christ in a new way. His testimony included a quote from a book called Christ is all. The Lord Jesus received his holiness. The Lord, re- Lord Jesus received, his holiness begun. The Lord Jesus cherished, his holiness advanced. The Lord Jesus counted upon as never absent would be holiness complete. Let's try it again. The Lord Jesus received, trusting Christ, holiness begins. The Lord Jesus cherished his holiness advancing. May I say that a lot of our problem may be number two. There's really not a cherishing of the Lord Jesus. Something else, but not that. McCarthy went on to describe the radical difference this message was making in his life. Abiding, not striving or struggling, looking off unto him, trusting him for present power, trusting him to subdue all inward corruption, resting in the love of an almighty Savior. This is not new, yet tis new to me. I feel as though the first dawning of a glorious day had risen upon me. As Taylor read McCarthy's letter, he was given a new look at Christ. That look proved to be transformational. Six weeks later, Taylor received a letter from his sister in England, and she poured out her heart about the pressures she was experiencing as a mother with a growing family and the frustration she felt with her own walk with the Lord. In his reply, Taylor eagerly shared with his troubled sister what Christ had so freshly done in his life. As I read the letter, he says, I saw it all. I looked to Jesus and I saw. And when I saw, oh, how joy flowed, that he had said, I will never leave you. Ah, there is rest, I thought. I saw not only that Jesus would never leave me, but that I was a member of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. Oh, the joy of seeing this truth. It's a wonderful thing to be really one with a risen and exalted Savior, to be member of Christ. That Think what that involves. Can Christ be rich and I poor? Can your right hand be rich and the left poor? Or your head be well fed but your body starves? All this springs from the believer's oneness with Christ. And since Christ has thus d- dwelt in my heart by faith, how happy I have been. And DeMoss finishes up by saying, like Hudson Taylor, you may have been striving and struggling to be more holy. The Lord Jesus invites you to cease your striving in your own flesh and to come to him and to find rest for your soul as you meditate on his magnificence and follow in his footsteps. He will bring about in you a marvelous transformation that will be completed when you finally see him face to face. Let's pray.